Well, you all know of my love for flying during the nine years that we lived in Colorado Springs before we came here. Uh, one of the things that we did a couple times with the kids when Brandon and Sean were young, I would grab them, we'd hop in the car and ho head over to the Air Force Academy and we would watch the military jet fly over before uh, some of the football games. And uh, it, we'd, we'd pile in, drive in through the, the Southgate, head up Stadium Boulevard, kind of inching along with the rest of the traffic, pull into that huge parking lot right outside of Falcon Stadium. And then while everybody else went inside of the stadium, we'd go around at the south end of it and look down towards Cheyenne Mountain. And then while we stood there, over would come these C-130s and C-5s and A-10s and F-4s and F-15s and F-16s and B-1Bs and B-2s. And it was incredible. It was so fun watching them. And then at the end of that, we, uh, while everybody else filed inside and, and the game was about to begin, we would turn to leave. But one time, just as we were turning to go, somebody walked up to us with some tickets in his hand and said, hey, would you guys be interested in going inside and enjoying the game? And, and I said, hey, you know, I really appreciate that. That uh, really means a, a lot. Thank you. But um, we can't afford the tickets. And uh, we're just here to watch the flyover. And, and so we're not able to head in. But thank you. Thanks for thinking about it. And the guy said, no, no. Here, you can have these. Enjoy the game. And I still remember the moment when the three of us just kind of, you know, he, he said goodbye and we all just kind of turned and looked at each other like, did that really just happen? So we took our tickets that we did not pay for and couldn't afford and walked over to the gate and we were welcomed in. We took our seat with the 46,000 other people who were there to enjoy the game. Um, there because as people who had no business being there and loving it. Well, we find ourselves in the middle of a sermon series called Ascent, in which we are following Moses into deeper intimacy with God. And uh, that exploration is focused on the story that unfolds for us in Exodus chapters 19 through about 34, when God brings his people to Mount Sinai. And bottom line, the basic, the basic essence of the story. There are a lot of different things going on in these chapters, but the essence of the story is this simple. God, at his own initiative, brings his people to himself in order that they might worship and enjoy him. And that's really the essence of God's dealing with us, isn't it? So just to remind you of where we've been really quickly, our, our study of this story shows us that God has taken the initiative at every step and in every aspect of God's people's dealings with him. He takes the initiative to bring his people to himself, drawing near to us. He takes the initiative to extend an invitation to them to come into his presence in order that we might draw near to him. He takes the initiative to, to reveal himself to his people. Here is what my nature and my character and my heart are like. And today we explore another crucial dimension of God's dealings with his people. And that is the initiative that he takes in overcoming the seemingly insurmountable barriers that stand between us and him. You remember that once he brought them to Mount Sinai, God reveals to Moses and to the Israelites some stunning glimpses of his holiness, his transcendence and his love. And in each case, as he is revealing these things about himself, even as he is making himself known, 
He is drawing lines that separate us from him, from him. He is holy and we are not. He is transcendent and we are not. He is perfect in his love and we are certainly not. We are unlike God. God is unlike us. We are far from him. You may remember that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, Moses tells God's people why God is giving them these glimpses of himself. He wants to give them 2020 vision to help them to see him clearly so that they can respond appropriately, to see what he's worth in order to give him what he is worth. So Exodus 2020, Moses says to the people, don't be afraid. God has come in this way to show you his awesome power and it's still a deep and reverent awe within you so that you won't sin. But there is an understandable opposite reaction that wells up in God's people as they are confronted with these glimpses of God's nature, his character, and his heart. It's a reaction not of awe and of reverence, but of conviction and of fear. John Calvin reminds us that Whenever we see God more clearly, we will always see ourselves more clearly as well. Listen to what he writes in Calvin's uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion. It is certain that, the, that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves to be all but demigods. But suppose we begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness and wisdom and power, the straight edge to which we must be compared and conformed. Then what masqueraded earlier as righteousness and seemed pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate corruption. As a consequence, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. What gets revealed in us against the backdrop of God's moral purity and perfection are two fatal spiritual problems, our guilt and our shame. Guilt means that there's something wrong with what we do. We do wrong. We cross over God's lines. We fall short of God's standards. We hurt God and we hurt others. Shame means there's something wrong with who we are. We are bent and broken at heart as people. We are far from purity and perfection. By our very nature, we reject God's rightful place of rule in our lives, and we take over that place for ourselves. So who we are falls short of the glory of God and offends God's perfect character. That's why when God invites his people to step closer, they step further back, because in giving them glimpses of himself, he is also giving them glimpses of themselves. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet sound and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we'll die. It's the same reaction that we see in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah comes face to face with God in a vision. 
It was in the year that King Uzziah died when I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a holy throne and the train of his robe filled the temple and attending him were mighty seraphim who were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory and their voices shook the temple to its foundation and the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, it's all over. I'm, I'm doomed for I am a sinful man. It's the same reaction we see in Peter when he comes face to face with the divine when Jesus performs a miracle. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, it says in Luke 5, he fell on his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. When we see God clearly, we see ourselves clearly. And when we see ourselves clearly, we realize we have no business being near him. We have no basis for right standing in God's holy presence. We are morally disqualified. We don't belong inside the stadium. Which makes what happens in Exodus chapter 24 at Mount Sinai so amazing and so significant. And, what make, and it makes what happens 1,500 years later at Golgotha even more amazing and significant. Just as God takes the initiative to bring his people to himself, to invite them near, to make himself known to them, so God takes the initiative to make provision for us in spite of our being so completely and utterly disqualified. So let's look at what unfolds in the first 11 verses in Exodus chapter 24. And before I read this story, I do want to just highlight one really significant word that shows up twice in this account. It's a word that might be familiar for you for some reason. It's the word covenant. We see it in verse 7 when Moses reads from the book of the covenant, and then we see it again in verse 8 when Moses sprinkles the people with the blood of the covenant. Everything that happens in chapter 24 is about God's covenant relationship with his people. So the idea of a covenant is so significant in God's dealings with his people all through scripture that it's really important that we understand what a covenant is. So in its simplest form, a covenant is very simple. It is a commitment in the context of a relationship. A covenant is a commitment in the context of a relationship. But as soon as I say that, it is so important that we recognize that there are, are two radically different kinds of covenants in the ancient world. And they are as different as a compact that a woman carries in her purse and a compact that's made between nations. The first kind of covenant is a deal between two equal partners, like two business associates. The relationship they have is one of equals, and the commitment that they each make is to carry out their side of the deal, sharing the cost together, each one of them giving something in order to gain something else in return. But the other kind of covenant is a treaty, not a deal. It's a treaty between two utterly unequal parties, between a conquering king and a vanquished foe. That's the kind of covenant we encounter here. And in fact, it is the only kind of covenant that we encounter in the, uh, between God and his people in the pages of scripture. In this second kind of covenant, the relationship that they have is between one person with all the power and all of the resources and the other person with none. And the commitment that's made is a commitment that the person in power makes on behalf of both parties and which is merely accepted with gratitude by the other party. 
The king promises to himself and to his subjects that he will protect them and he will provide for them and he will be present and available to them at cost to himself. And all that his subjects need to do is to respond with gratitude by accepting his gracious and undeserved provision and giving him their complete allegiance. That's all that's required of them. So whenever a covenant was agreed upon, the same elements were always present. There was a history of the relationship between the two parties and the faithfulness of the one in power towards the, the weaker person. There is always the, uh, the list of expectations that are to be met by both parties that are written down and they are read. Uh, the benefits of keeping the covenant and the costs of failing to keep the covenant are enumerated. And then a copy of the covenant is made for both parties. And then after that, the covenant agreement is sealed between the two parties by their eating a covenant meal together. So with that as background, let's listen to what happens in Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel representing the rest of the people of Israel. And you are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord the others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. So when Moses went and told the people all of the Lord's words and all of the Lord's laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel and then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So before we go on to just read the last uh, three verses of this story, let me just pause here. Why the offerings? Why the sacrifices? Why the sprinkling with blood? God has called his people to himself, and he now invites them into a king and subject covenant relationship with himself a relationship between a person with power and a person who lacks power. But this is not just an inequity of power between God and his people. There is a moral imbalance. There's a, a moral inequity as well. There's this huge chasm between God's perfect moral character and the sin and the corruption that touch every one of us as God's people. There's a, an iniquity inequity. And immoral humanity cannot stand in the presence of holy God. My sin is an affront to God's moral purity and his perfection. I can't approach him on the basis of my own merit. I'm utterly disqualified. The line, the gulf between us is too great for me to cross. And in fact, the fitting and proportionate penalty for my sin for my rejecting God's rightful place of rule in my life and, and riding roughshod over his moral boundaries, the, the proportionate penalty is my own life. So either I need to bear that penalty myself 
or in order for me to live, in order for me to stand in God's presence, something must die in my place. And this is the absolutely stunning part of God's initiative that we are looking at today. God doesn't just take the initiative to bring his people to himself and invite them to draw near and reveal his nature and his character and his heart to them. God takes upon himself the burden of this moral gap between us and God that keeps us from being able to approach God otherwise. God makes gracious provision. God establishes a means by which sinful humanity can approach him in all of his purity and perfection. And that provision is called substitutionary atonement. Another living being is offered in my place, bearing the penalty that is my due. It's based on the principle that's shared throughout scripture, but reiterated in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's what the sacrificial system is all about. Notice in verse 5 that there are two different kinds of sacrifices that are being offered. The people offer burnt offerings to atone for their sin against God. And then they are sprinkled with blood from those sacrifices. Being sprinkled with blood was a way of, of showing that we have received the benefits of that shed blood. That that sacrifice was for us in our stead. We, we now stand under the mercy so rather than running from God in fear because of his sacrificial provision, we can now approach him in reverent awe and enjoy his holy presence, which leads to the second kind of sacrifice that's also offered on the mountain. They offer burnt offerings to atone for their sin against God, but then they also offer fellowship offerings to celebrate their friendship with God that God has made possible for them because of his love for them. So listen to the remarkable end of the story, beginning or picking back up in verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a, a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these elders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. As we said earlier, eating a meal together is a sign of both parties committing to this covenant agreement. But, but even more, in Near Eastern culture, sharing a meal together was a sign of, of fellowship, of friendship. It was a sign of connection and affection. So the God of the universe, mighty, majestic, pure, and perfect, has brought his people to the foot of his mountain with startling displays of Power with smoke and fire and earthquakes and trumpet blasts. He has put his holiness and his transcendence on display. And then having drawn the starkest of lines between his holy character and our sinful character, between his transcendent nature as creator and our dependent nature as creature, he then obliterates those lines. He throws out his arms and he welcomes us to his table. Remember, again, the basic storyboard of this multi-chapter long story. At his own initiative, God brings his people near that they might worship and enjoy him. A travel forward 1,500 years from Mount Sinai to that hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, on which Jesus offers his life on the cross. 
I would encourage you to go back and read the entirety of these chapters, but let me just read for you a couple of sections from Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 that I think against the backdrop of this story in Exodus 24 will just pop with meaning this morning. Listen to these words. But when Christ came, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thereby obtaining our eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all of the people, he took the blood of calves and he sprinkled the scroll and all of the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood, he, Jesus, sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Oh, but then he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So now the ability to approach God as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, is not reserved for a few, but it is open to all. It's based not on the flimsy footing of a series of, of inadequate ritual sacrifices that have to be made over and over and over again every time we fail, but on a once and for all sacrifice by the covenant maker himself. With this passage, this whole story suddenly takes a very, very personal turn. We move from considering ancient history to finding ourselves in the story of God's purposes. Paul describes where every single one of us is spiritually when we're outside of a relationship with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and you were without God in the world. But then one day, as we stood out the, outside of the gates, unable to gain entry, unable to afford the cost, the Son of Man strolled into human history. He walked up to us and he said, would you like to get in? Would you like to have a seat? I will pay the way. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you are who, you who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
God himself invites us into intimate fellowship with himself. God himself invites us to the table. If we have accepted God's covenant invitation, if we have given our allegiance to Jesus as king, then we have been sprinkled with blood, as Peter says. And we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all, as the writer of Hebrews says. God invites us, us, as forgiven, accepted, and beloved partners in the covenant into a relationship of intimacy with himself. A relationship of knowing and being known, of loving and being loved, of abiding in and abiding with. And God's initiative makes that intimacy with him possible. He takes those who are outside and had no way in, and he paid the penalty himself. All of the costs falling upon himself on the cross in order that we who are far away might come near. That we who are outside might come in. Through the gift of his own son, he opens the way into life and into his heart, into a place of friendship and fellowship, into a place of moment-by-moment connection and affection with God. And so this is God's invitation to each one of us this morning. Let us then know first this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess and let us then approach God's throne with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus in our place is what lets us approach the throne of grace freely as forgiven people rather than holding back or running away in our guilt and shame. We can come to God joyfully and confidently, even in our weakness and our brokenness, even in our sin and our failure, because God himself, the God of grace and compassion, has made provision for us and has opened a way to a place at his table. George Herbert captures the utterly unexpected and utterly undeserved invitation perfectly when he writes this. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest I answered worthy to be here, and love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Well, my dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit. And eat. Have you accepted God's gracious gift to you in Christ? Have you stepped through the door that Jesus opens into the heart of God and intimacy with Him? Have you put your trust in Him and given Him your allegiance? Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of